Good evening, Redemption Tempe. This, you guys have so much enthusiasm. I really appreciate it. Uh, well, my name is Jim Mullins. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, we want to welcome you to Redemption Tempe. We're one of six congregations who are seeking to make disciples who live all of life, all for Jesus. Um, this evening, I want to just start with a few announcements. Our classes are beginning in September. We typically take a break throughout the summer uh, with our classes, but we're relaunching with classes. So I would really encourage you to go online and to look at the different classes that we'll have through the year and um, sign up for one or two of those. Two of them I would like to highlight. Um, First of all, we're going to be doing a a class on God's mission. And um, Will Vikirovich and I will be teaching that class. And it's a class that looks at what is God's mission and what is our place within that mission. This is my favorite class to teach. It's going to be six-week class early in the morning at like 6 a.m. So I really want to invite you to come there, get some coffee, and reflect on God's mission together. Um, another class that we're going to do is a class on how to study the Bible. That's going to be in this room on September 15th at 6.30 p.m. It's a Wednesday evening. And a lot of believers um, love Jesus, they follow Jesus, but they've never really been trained on how to study the Bible and how to read the Bible as this overarching, life-transforming, true story that shapes us. And so we're going to do some training on that September 15th in this room, 6.30 p.m. And, and now, you know, as we've done every week, I want to continue with our all-of-life interviews. We believe that all of life is all for Jesus. Every domain of society, every business, every aspect of recreation, family. And we say that a lot, but we want to not just tell you, but show you as well. So we're taking people from different, different areas of God's world and interviewing them and, ta- and talking about how they live that out. So we're going to interview Raheel Khan today. So if you'd go ahead and give him a hand. Thanks for, thanks for doing this, Raheel. And uh, we really appreciate it. Raheel works for the ASU Foundation. I'm going to go ahead and let him tell you what he does. So ASU Foundation is a nonprofit organization that is responsible for investing, managing, and raising private contributions on behalf of the Arizona State University. That's good. That's good. So what, uh, as you're working for them, you're a guy who's come to really love the glory of God. How do you work for the glory of God in, in your daily workplace? Uh, one, of the, one of the few interactions, or one of the many interactions that I have is with fundraisers to be able to flesh out a proposal that we're going to put in front of a donor to explain to them how we desire to use their gifts. And so one of the questions that I get to ask and I think about constantly is, how do I push back the effect of the fall? How do I bring the foretaste of the kingdom of heaven into this world? How do we leverage the amazing resources that we have at the Arizona State University to be able to answer questions like, how do we educate in a rapidly changing world? How do we um, defend and extend human rights? How do we just continually push back on, on things that this world is, you know, is broken? And so I get to think about those things, and I get to communicate with the fundraiser, and I get to draft out those proposals. That's great. That's great. Now you follow Jesus, who's the servant, who who's the the, the blessing uh, that comes from uh, that, and who calls us to bless others. How do you, in your work, 
serve and bless the community? Well, I, I get to see from the drafting of the proposals to the receiving of the gifts, and as I, as I get to see the impact that those gifts have, because more often than not, donors that tend to give are, were previous recipients of scholarships in their lifetime, and so I get to see the gospel play out of that. That before they had nothing, and they, and they didn't have an opportunity for a higher education until someone came in from the outside and gave them money and support and time. Um, and to be able to just continue uh, going for a higher education and then go out in the workplace and become successful and then decide to give back. So I get to see the impact of those gifts. Um, I, I, I see impact statements from, er, from current recipients on, on the life that they're living and how the, the scholarship that's come in has blessed them. And also I get to see how the gifts have impacts for research and programs that we have at Arizona State University that we can utilize for uh, society, community. Uh, in Tempe, and not just Tempe, but greater Arizona. That's good. Now, you're a reader, and I've seen you over the years. Uh, your, your mentality has changed a little bit from just working just because you have to have a job to uh, having it really integrated with your walk with Jesus. What are some of the books that have helped you? Uh, there are four books in particular that helped me. Uh, two primarily just kind of opened up this, this gate, and I was like, oh, wow. Uh, they were... Uh, Heaven is Not Our Home by Paul Marshall. The second was Kingdom Calling by Amy Sherman. And then the two that you recommended, that you always recommend when you're up here, that you think nobody's listening. I, I listened to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller. And then the fourth was um, Andy Crouch's Culture Making. That's good. That's good. I, I just had him answer that question just to give a little plug for myself. <laughs> right? uh, you're welcome. They, <laughs> how, how can we pray for you and the other folks in your industry and who do similar work? Well, I know that there's probably a ton of you that work in nonprofit, and you feel that angst or that anxiety at year end when you're not sure what the future holds because your work is dependent upon somebody else contributing to your company to be able for you to sustain and continue the work that you do. So just just wanting to see an influx of contributors and do- donations that come in, but also as I look around, I see a lot of young people. And so the hope is for this generation to also contribute not only in their time but also um, with their money and energy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Who here works for some sort of nonprofit? All right, I see a few hands. We're going to go ahead and pray for you and pray for Raheel. God, I thank you. Um, I thank you for the good work that our brothers and sisters in Christ are doing through the various nonprofits and for the nonprofit sector. And God, we just pray that in the midst of their work, that you would bless them so that they could be a blessing. For those who work in institutions uh, that maybe doesn't, don't name the name of Jesus as Lord, that they would be able to work there with faithfulness and do good and, and honor everybody, but stay true uh, and faithful to their, to their king. We also, uh, we also pray for uh, this generation, this, the younger generations that are coming up, that they would be moved by the generosity of the gospel and would be a generous generation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Will you thank these guys again? All right. If this is your first time here, my name is Ricardo, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, We have been walking through the book of Romans. We are in week 18 right now, and we're going to continue to do that. So if you have a Bible, meet me at Romans uh, chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through, excuse me, 4 through 8. So Romans chapter 4, 4 through 8. If you don't have a Bible... Raise your hand and keep it raised really high, 
and then one of the guys will be able to give you a copy of God's Word. And then if you don't own a Bible, please keep the copy that we're handing out so that you can have God's Word. Now, as you turn there, um, I have one more announcement and somewhat of a plug for this Wednesday. Uh, this upcoming Wednesday, we're having a special night here in this room from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. We're partnering together with Redemption Arcadia, and we're bringing in a guy by the name of Dale Keen. Uh, Dale Keen is a guy who wrote a book called Sex and the Eye World. When we were getting ready to go through Romans several months ago, when I was getting my hands on everything I can about the topic of same-sex marriage and homosexuality, because I knew that it was going to come up in the text, I came across this book by Dale. Uh, Dale, we're, we're, we're tight now. And uh, DK is what we actually call him. But anyway, so by this guy, and I read it and thought, this might be the best book I've read, not because it talks so much about same-sex marriage or homosexuality, but the framework of which he placed it in. Um, and so a couple months later, I went to a conference, didn't know he was speaking. Um, he got on stage, and I'm thinking, oh, this is the guy that I read. This is amazing. And so what you do at any conference like that is you find out where that guy's staying at, whatever hotel, and you just kind of show up and go, hey, wow, you're, you're staying here. Let's talk, right? And so we get a chance to meet with him, and um, we asked him if he'd come out to Arizona. And so we're going to have that opportunity to do that this Wednesday. And so it will be definitely worth, worth your time. Um, to have, to listen to someone talk about these, these topics. And he does such in a way that it's not just highly academic, but, it, but it's uh, very um, accessible for lay people that don't read as many books as what he reads. And that's why I think I like him a lot. And so he's going to be here this Wednesday, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. There will not be childcare, unfortunately. Uh, we're unable to get the resources together to do that. But if you can find babysitters for those of you guys with children, it'd be definitely worth your time. We'll pack out this room this Wednesday. That's all I have. Hey, we're going we're gonna to continue Romans here. So Romans chapter 4. If you have not been here with us, uh, we have been walking through this book. And as I said, it's week 18. We are still in the very beginning of chapter 4. For week after week after week after week, we heard about our problem. And our problem meaning every single person, every single man, every single woman, every single child, is that we are separated from God because of our sin. And, and Paul did a good job at, at saying not only those who say there is no God, but he said oh, even those who grew up with church religious backgrounds, that we're all in the same predicament, that we're separated from God and there's nothing that we and ourselves can do anything about it. And then for the past few weeks, we've been unpacking the doctrine of justification, which is good news. And that, that teaching of justification, that God himself makes us right before himself, not by what we do, but by what he does. And so last week, what Paul did is he looked at a man named Abraham in the Old Testament, and we learned some truths about justification from looking at Abraham's life. Paul continues in that same theme of talking about justification, and there's three other things that we learn. Um, and this time, he pulls a bit out of it from King David's life, which we'll look at. So this, this evening, verses 4 through 8, looking at the doctrine of justification, the three things that we'll see is when you understand the gospel, we see that the gospel brings complete acceptance, complete forgiveness, and complete freedom. Complete acceptance, complete forgiveness, and then complete freedom. Uh, the first point is God brings complete acceptance. Verse 4. Now, to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Um, several years ago, about six, seven years ago, my wife and I were meeting uh, with some friends of ours that were not Christian. 
and we would hang out with them, and we just had a great relationship with them. And then finally, the girlfriend decided to meet with us because she said she had some questions, and she had some thoughts, and she wanted to talk to some people. So we sat down on a coffee place and began to talk with her, and she just unpacked her life, and she says, I'm looking for something to satisfy me. Like, I'm, I'm looking for something to just fill this gap or this void or something that I have. And so we're, we're like, what do, you, what do you mean by that? And she goes, well, I, I thought if I can get this guy, my good friend, um, to marry me, that would be it. Like, if I could just get him to marry me. We've been together for years. Um, we, we, we have a family together. I thought that would be it. But then that hasn't happened yet. And then I thought when I got pregnant with my little girl that if once I gave birth to her, then I would, then, then that, that child, then that I would be able to love someone and someone would be able to love me back unconditionally. But now that I have her, as beautiful as she is, as much as I love her, I know that I can lose her. And I still, that still has not fit yet. And, and she's saying, I, I just want something that I can know would love me unconditionally and that would accept me for who I am. And no matter what I do, I won't lose it. And I don't have that. And then as, as my wife and I, we're like, oh, like this is the perfect opportunity to like talk about the gospel, right? Like Jesus is your answer. Like that's like the ultimate Christian answer. She's like, my ankle hurts. And we're like, oh, Jesus, like this, that's what you do, right? Finally, this was like Jesus was applicable and appropriate for this moment. And we begin to unpack the gospel of just saying, do you understand that the only being that will fully accept you for who you are, no matter what you've done or what you will do, is Christ, and this is what he's done on our behalf, and that you freely, by believing in him, will have this acceptance, will have this love, and, and you know, your, your, your boyfriend, he could, never, he could never propose to you, and even if he did, what if he's not a good husband, and your kid at some point will probably turn her back on you, and maybe turn back, we're not really sure, but God will never do that. And this is, this is called grace, and we're talking to her. And I don't know if you've ever had that moment where you're talking to someone about spiritual things and about the gospel, and you feel like, this is it. Like, they're about, they're about, like I'm about to close the deal. And she looked at us kind of like, no. <laughs> and it's like, oh, dang, you know? And I was like, what is it? She goes, this grace. So God does, she, let me just get this clear. God does it all. All I have to do is believe in him, and he's just going to forgive me and love me, and I don't have to do anything for it? She goes, that just seems too easy. Like, I feel like I should have to do something for it. That just seems, it's just hard for me to grasp. And for my wife and I, and for many of us in this room, when it comes to grace, we stand on this side of grace. And we look at it and go, no, that's not too easy. That's amazing that God would do that on our behalf, that he would, he would cleanse us of our sins and all unrighteousness and give us his righteousness, not because of what we've done, but because of what he did on our behalf. We stand on this side. But the reason why we stand on this side is not because we had better eyes or better vision, then, my friend, it's because God, by his spirit, had awakened us to see this truth. There are many people who stand on this side of grace. Many religious people who go to church services or, or religious services, and they stand on this side of grace and say, really, I can be accepted and I don't have to do anything? No way, that sounds way too easy. In, in fact, the original audience that Paul was talking to here in Romans, primarily the Jewish audience, they had a hard time with grace. They had a hard time because it seemed to them that Paul was saying that their obedience didn't matter when it came to a right relationship with God. They had a hard time with it because they felt like what Paul was saying was that their morality that they'd been working hard for didn't matter, that God would save them in spite of those things. And they didn't like that. And so it was hard for them to grasp grace. And it's not just hard for them. It's hard for all of us. And here's why it's hard. is because grace is not something in, that we run into in our everyday lives. Grace is not a concept or a teaching that is pervasive in all that we do. 
I mean, just think about it. No, no one, nowhere, no one operates out of grace. No organization operates out of grace, even personally. When it comes to personal relationships, we know we need to work hard or we need to, we need to uh, show ourselves to be something better than what we normally are in order to be accepted. When a guy is pursuing a woman or vice versa, they put forth their best self. Um, like they put on their best clothes and they have their best language and they, they basically become someone they're not for a while uh, to, to win that person and then they become themselves later, right? But I mean, for the most part, you put forth what's best to hope that this person will accept you. Right? None of us goes, oh man, that girl, man, I wish I could date her. Hope she's operating out of grace, right? Like, like, <laughs> like that, that doesn't happen. I, I was talking to a guy the other day that um, uh, runs this restaurant that I really, really love here in town. And he came out, and he's also the cook, and he was talking to us. And, and we were talking about just restaurant stuff. And I'm talking to him, trying to build a friendship and a relationship with him. And, and I said, hey, how'd you meet your wife? You know, I thought that was a great question. And he goes, man, his eyes lit up. And he goes, oh, when I was working at this one restaurant, I met her, and we were talking. And she was just playing really hard to get. And the fact that she made me work for it, I was like, yeah, like she made me work for it. And that was good enough for me. And we're like that even in relationships. We want to work for something. When, when we have to work for something, it means something to us. And that's a good thing. I mean, I know it was like that for me in my relationship with, with my wife. The first, the first date that Holly and I went on, I knew at that moment, I knew like it was obvious. She loves me, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was pretty obvious that I was pursuing her, and I was pursuing her not just to be, like, some friend. Like, I was, I was you know, I was trying to be that dude, you know? Like, and so, so we get to her door. Um, I drop her off, and I go for a hug. Now, here's the thing about me with hugs. I'm not a touch person. Anybody around me knows I can't stand being touched. Like, I'd rather just give you some air dap. Like, we don't even just, just right there, knuckles, just close enough, right? And so the fact that I was going to, to go for the hug, I thought, like, this is, this, she's going to know. Well, I go for the hug, and then she, like, turns her body to the side and gives me, like, this evangelical Christian side hug, right? Like, the hip in it and the hug. It's like, what the heck is that? And she's like, not on the first night. This can go down like that, right? I don't know what you think this is. And I'm like, whoa, she's going to make me work for it. That's wifey right there, right? And so there's, in, in relationships, <laughs> that's a true story. She actually patted my back. <laughs> And so, and so for the next six months, I, her nickname was Patty, you know? So it's like, <laughs> she's like, nice date. <laughs> it's like, oh, it was friend mode and then, but it all worked out. But we, we, we want to work for things. It, it, professionally, this works. We, we don't go to places that we want to hire us and um, expect for them to work out of grace. No, we get a resume. And we say, here's what school we went to, and here's the work that I had, and here's my three references, and you can call them, and they'll vouch for my work. And then, and then the employer can say, if you're good enough or you qualify, then you will be accepted. Not so with God. It doesn't work like that. And in fact, when it, when it comes to God accepting us completely, we said this last week, we are not called because we were qualified. God didn't look at us and go, man, you have a lot of potential. I can see some things in you. I'm, you know, I'm going to invest into you. God doesn't invest us because of something we will become. Because if that were the case, God himself would be an, a terrible investment banker. It's like, no, no return, right? Not good. We were not called because we're qualified, but we were qualified because we were called. Paul is trying to communicate when it comes to acceptance, it's not by what you do. And the way that he does this in verse 4 is he, he gives us common sense business language. He says this in verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. 
Meaning when you work, you don't go to your boss and go, wow, what a gift for you to pay me what, I, what you owe me. Never. If they don't pay, you're like, whoa, 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 bro. Like, I put in these hours. I did what I was supposed to do. You owe me. God is trying to make it clear. If it was about your works, which it never could have been, then God would basically be in, indebted to you. But his love for you would be because you've been good. And he goes, I owe you something now. And what the Bible teaches us and what Paul is saying is when it comes to acceptance, it's not, God doesn't owe us anything. He's not obligated to love us. He willingly, by grace, he willingly comes and makes relationship with us. And then when he decides to accept us, he accepts all of us. It's complete. In fact, this is how he explains it in verse 5. And to the one who does not work, that means the one who does not trust in their own works, who does not trust in their own background, who does not trust in their abilities. And to this person, Paul says, to the one who does not work but believes in him or trusts in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That, that phrase, counted as righteousness, comes up again. He says, to the one who does not trust in their own record, who does not have a moral record and hand it to God and say, what do you think? What are my chances? But to the one who realized, God, I'm completely ungodly. Like, that's the, that's the only thing we bring to the table is we bring our sin and go, God, we can't make things right with you. What do we do? We want to trust in you. And he says, to that one who trusts by faith, meaning the instrument in which God uses, that person is accounted as righteous. And we said this, being accounted as righteous means that you had insufficient funds. You had no money in your pocket. And you, had, it, it, you swiped your card and it says insufficient funds. And you needed something. And God himself, in the richness of his mercy and grace, he enters in and says, I will accept you and I will give you what is mine will become yours. He doesn't do this because of what we would become. He does this out of his love. And the way that we receive it is not by works, but by faith. And so we are counted as righteousness. That means that God looks upon us now and he fully accepts us, meaning he completely accepts us. And so the gospel teaches us um, that we are completely accepted. That means all of you, your past, your present, and your future. That, that, that God is saying, I accept the old you, the present you, and the future you. And the way he does that is because he puts into our account. Now, because Paul brings this up again, accredited or counted as righteousness, this is an important piece of the gospel. And so I'm going to unpack this a little bit more when it comes to our acceptance, because how this is done means something to Christianity. Uh, There's kind of two other pervasive teachings on this that are not the gospel. The first one is inherent. The second one is infusion. Uh, so the first one, when it comes inherent, it's, it's people who may or may not go to a church or go to any religious service. And you would probably talk to them and you would say, hey, do you think you're going to go to heaven or something like that? And they would say, well, um, if there is a God, yeah, I would go. And you ask them why. And they would say, because I'm a good person. I mean, you've probably said that yourself or you've heard people say that because I'm a good person. And no, no I mean, they would say no one's perfect, right? But I'm a good person. And usually that's based on a horizontal scale. And so what they usually say from that is like, I'm a good person. I do good things to good people. I've never murdered anybody. I mean, there was a couple of times I thought about it, but I didn't. So if there's a God, he would, he would accept me. So I, that's inherent theology. Inherently, I'm good. Well, Paul has spent weeks and weeks and weeks in saying, that ain't true, right? That even in your, your best deeds, that it's not, that no one is righteous. Well, then the second one, which is probably more pervasive through... Um, other faiths around us and many backgrounds in which we come from and maybe some of you are still a part of 
And that's infusion. And so the breakdown of infusion, it basically means grace, God, plus what you do. And so the way what makes you accepted is that God says, yeah, I love you. And then you say, yeah, but I have to do this too, right? And then it's kind of like this mixture between you and God, like kind of in the clabo together. And like between the two of you guys, you, you, you were accepted by God. And so the first one is grace working through uh, works, not faith. So grace working through works. And so this is, and again, I want to be very sensitive to this. I understand that we have many people that uh, attend our services on Sunday. So this is no dig. This is just explaining um, even your tradition. So this would be Roman Catholicism, is this infusion of grace working through works. And those works usually mean God works through when you take uh, communion, when you were baptized as a child, when you confess sin, when you show penance for the sins that you've done. That, that, that's how you were accepted. It's not grace and grace alone, unmerited favor, working through faith and faith alone. It's grace working through your works, and there's kind of a blending there. And, and, and hear me on that. Um, communion is a great deal. We do it every week. Confession is something we all should do. It's an imperative of Scripture. Um, baptism is something we do in response to who God is. And so all of those things are good things, but they're means of grace. And if you've heard, ever heard that language, means of grace, it's not grace in itself. It's a means in which we do to remind us of grace. It is not grace in itself. It's something in which we can do to remind us of who we are in Christ and what he's done. So that's one part of Ephesians, grace working through works. The other one is grace after all you've done. And this particular teaching is true in the LDS community, Latter-day Saint, or Mormonism. And the way that this usually works is basically you try all that you can do. You try to live up to everything that you have. And if you tried your best, then grace, right? But grace hap- happens after all you can do. So it's God's grace and then what you can do. And, and here's a quote from one of the, the Mormon's uh, teachings in Second Nephi. It says, we labor diligently to write to persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved. If you just stop there and then continue, you'd go, we believe that. Like, wait a minute. I'm a Mormon. Like, I mean, just like, like overnight. Like, right, this is, how'd that happen, right? Like, overnight. Like, so far, that's good. And here's what I want to say why this is, this is serious is that, that um, look at the last part. After all you can, all, all, after all we can do. Those last few words right there, destroy the rest. That's Paul's whole point here. In fact, that's why Paul is in the book of Galatians and he says it with even more anger. He goes, don't add to this. In fact, in, in Galatians chapter one, verse eight, he says, if we or another angel, he's saying, if anybody comes and distorts this grace, this gospel, man, may they be a curse. It literally means may they go to hell. He's saying, when you start to dilute that, you don't have the gospel. Uh, David Blakeman, our worship leader, I didn't say this earlier, but he gave this illustration about this truth um, that he heard from someone else. And he basically said this, this uh, youth pastor basically had this jar of water and said, hey, um, here's a fresh you know, glass of water. He goes, what if I dropped some urine in there? Would you drink it? Just a little bit, just a little drop of urine. This is total like high school student ministries, right? He's like, just a little urine. In fact, he peed in it. And then no, <laughs> some junior high kid was like, I want it. I'll do it. <laughs> like, it's like, <laughs> she's like, would you drink it? Everyone's like, no, no, no. And his whole point was saying, even if it's just a little bit off, even just a drop of that 
oh yeah, also after what you can do, it ruins it. It ruins it. So, so when you ruin the gospel, basically what it is, it's like a, it's like a fresh glass of water with a little urine. <laughs> you don't want that. So you have inherent, right? It's basically all, like my good works. You know what I mean? That, you know, I've, I'm a good person. You have infusion. It's God plus man. And then you have what Paul's been teaching, that this acceptance that we're accepted completely is called imputation. We, inter- we introduced that word last week. Imputation is a word that Paul uses that's a very, um, like, like accountant-type word. It means to be a credit. So it's grace working through faith and faith alone. And that means God accepts you as is. He's not waiting for a better you. He's not waiting for a future you. He's not waiting for the you to be cleaned up. He's not waiting for you to, like, to understand the scriptures or to have the right translation of the Bible or to know when to stand up or to sit down within a service. I mean, he's not waiting for it. He says, by grace working through faith, he says, you are accredited or accounted as righteous. And so, therefore, by faith in God, we are completely accepted. And we didn't do anything to earn that. And we don't do anything to lose that. It is a work of the gospel. Amen? That, that is the truth of the gospel. And Paul says that's one aspect of justification by faith, that you were completely accepted. But Paul doesn't start there, stop there. In fact, he continues now to point to David, to give our last two points that we are, we are completely accepted, but also completely forgiven. And here's how he says it in verse 6. He says, just as David also speaks of blessing of the one to of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Paul does the same thing he did last week. He's talking to the Jewish people, trying to prove just the continuity of the way God works. He goes to Abraham and says, you see, in the Old Testament, God worked through grace, unmerited favor, working through faith. The same way he does in the New Testament. And now he's coming to David and he goes, just like David, this whole being accredited as righteousness. David understood this. Look at you know David. Just like last week, because you guys know Abraham. He said, now you know David. Because the Jewish audience, they would have known David. David was a hero of the faith. And what Paul begins to do is saying, listen, this hero of the faith wasn't that good. And yet he understands something of God. In fact, here's what I love about artists, and I know we have a lot of artists in in our community, is they're able to express deep truths and things about this world and people better than most of us could do, or we couldn't equally express it that way. And David himself, who was an artist, who wrote songs and poems, he's able to, after an experience of God, through all of his writings in, in the Psalms, is express things about God that are very, very helpful for us. And so Paul here quotes from Psalm 32 of David. And so when we are to understand that not only are we completely accepted by the gospel and through the gospel, but we are also completely forgiven, we have to understand the life of David that led him to write such things. To say, blessed is the man. So the story of David. If you don't know David, David was a man after God's own heart. The way it started off is there's a king in Israel, and his heart had changed. His name was Saul. And so God speaks of his prophet at the time whose name is Samuel. And he says, Samuel, I want you to go on a search. We're going to look at the best king that I want. And so he calls Samuel to go to this a particular house, and he says, you will find the king there. And Saul walks, excuse me, Samuel walks into the house, and he sees this man's son, sons, and all of them are strapping young, like, like real potential king-type guys. And Samuel's like, man, these guys all look great. And God's like, no, no, no. There's got to be another one. There's another one. And so Samuel goes to the dad and goes, are these all your sons? He goes, 
yeah, well, we got this other one, but he's like a little dude. Like, he's like a, he's out with the sheep. Like, you don't want him. He goes, no, that's the one. And God says, because man looks at the externals, but God looks at the internal. So Samuel goes out there, and David's like a shepherd. That's what he does. He hangs out with sheep all day. He take care, he take care of the sheep. He's, he's with them. He's writing songs. He's probably singing to the sheep. And so that, that David, David's doing that, and he protects the sheep. It says a bear came, and he took out a bear. And a lion came, and he took out a lion. And a tiger, and everything else. The tiger didn't happen. But the bear and the lion came. And he took him down with like, like a Dennis the Menace slingshot type thing. Right? Like David was like, David was a man after God's own heart. And he protected his sheep. And God says, that one, that's the one I want. And he's anointed as king, as a young boy. But David shows forth his humility, shows forth his faithfulness through his life. He doesn't go and usurp the king. He serves the king. The king tries to kill him. He's on the run from the king. There's a moment that I love where King David is still serving Saul. And even though Saul's trying to kill him, David's sleeping in and out of caves, running from him and fighting for him. And there's a moment where you have Saul, Saul sleep in a cave and David's there. And David has the opportunity to take him out. And I don't know if you ever read the Old Testament, but people get taken out on a daily, right? And so, so you have David there, and David just kind of cuts off a piece of his cloth just to let him know, like, if I want, that could have been you. That could have been you. And so he's faithful to the king. And we see this, and finally, God puts David there as king. He's the king of Israel. He's the best king. Things begin to prosper. He's a worshiper. He's a worshipful worship leader. He's writing songs. And there's, there's, there's another great scene of David where um, the ark had been taken away by the Philistines. It was the presence of God. It's where they, they would worship him. And, and, and when it was brought back in, they captured it. David saw the ark from afar. And I love the picture there because David is so excited that when it comes to worship, when it comes to understanding the presence of God, that David starts dancing. Like he's sitting there dancing, dugging in everything, right? In that moment. And his wife is like, what are you doing? And he's like, are you kidding me? Like the presence of God is here with us. I will act even crazier than this. He loved God. And David was the king of Israel. And then you get to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. And then we begin to see the downfall of David. And even after that, though David was a good king, David wasn't the best husband. David wasn't the best father. In fact, what we see in the lowest moment of the low part of David's life in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 is that Samuel, excuse me, David is supposed to be off at war. Normally what he would do is he would be with his people fighting. Everyone's off at war. He's at home. And the scripture lets us know that he woke up later in the day, which kind of, you know, you kind of think like later in the day is probably wilding out the night before. We're not really sure. They didn't tell us. But we do know is that he wakes up late. He's walking around his palace. He's looking around and he sees this woman who's taking a shower and he notices this woman. Her name was Bathsheba. And back then that was a really attractive name. And he sees Bathsheba. <laughs> no one's really naming their kids Bathsheba these days. <laughs> And, and instead of going, whoa, that's somebody else's wife, I'm married man, I'm a man after God's own heart, he sends his guys to go get her. And his guys begin to say, David, what are you doing? Like, that's Uriah, like a guy who's fighting for you, one of your mighty men. David had like six mighty men. Uriah was one of them. And he, and he goes, just, just bring her here. And, and, and then he brings Bathsheba to himself, and they have relationships together, like relationships, right? And then she gets pregnant. And David's like, oh, no. 
Instead of coming out and saying, a man after God's own heart, I'm going to confess my sin. I made a mistake. I sinned against God. I sinned against this man. I sinned against my family. David tries to hide it. He tries to hide it. Some of us know exactly what that's like because we hide sin all the time. And the way that David goes about trying to hide it is, is he calls Uriah back from the battlefield. And his, and his strategy is like, oh, I got a plan. So David goes, bring him back, have him eat with me. We'll eat and we'll drink and we'll drink and we'll drink. And, here's, and then he'll go home and he hasn't seen his wife in a long time. And so we'll drink and then he'll go home because he hasn't seen his wife in a long time. Right? And so if he goes home and then they have relationships, then all of a sudden they'll think the baby that she has is his baby. And then the baby would come out and David would be like, oh, wow, cute little baby. He looks just like me. That's weird. Right? And he's like, oh, covered up. Uriah is a better man than David. Uriah says, no, I, I, can't, I, can't, um, I can't go back and be with my wife right now because all of my men, they're fighting. They can't be with their wives. So I'll sleep here on the floor. So then David takes it another step further. And he goes to Joab, who's running the army. And he says, Joab, this is what I want you to do. I want you to put Uriah in the front. Because what happens when you're in the front is you usually are the most likely to die. And so essentially what David does is he co-signs the death of one of his mighty men because he slept with his wife and impregnated his wife. Because he sinned and he covered it. And it was over. And David thought, I'm good to go. Well, then 2 Samuel chapter 12 rolls around. Nathan, who's now a prophet, comes to David. He says, David, I want to tell you a story. He goes, in the land there was this man who was really rich. He had all the cattle. He had all the sheep. Which essentially means he had money for days. This dude was rich. That's kind of how Nathan said it. And then he says, and then there was a poor man. He didn't have anything. He had this little sheep that he cared for. In fact, he would let it sleep in the bed with him, which some people still do with their dogs. He said he would let the sheep sleep, sleep in the bed with him, and, and he would care for him. It's all he had. Well, the rich man had a party. And instead of taking one of his animals and making preparing a meal, he goes to this poor man who has nothing and takes away his one sheep, and he slaughters it. What do you think should happen to that man? And it says David was furious. He was enraged. And he goes, that man must die. And then Nathan steps back and he looks at David and says, you're the guy. God had given you everything. He'd given you the kingdom. He's given you his love. He's given you his grace. He would have given you more if you would have asked. You, just, you could have just asked. But you took and you stole from Uriah and then you murdered him and you took his wife. And in that moment, David's heart broke and he repented. He repented of his own sin. In that moment, we saw the king a man after God's own heart, that God said that. I mean, there's, there's so much we can learn from that story. One, there's not a person in this room who is exempt from falling in the worst way. It's not a person in this room, including myself. Nobody is exempt. Nobody. Another thing that we learn is when we're confronted with that, we realize there's no need to hide sin. And so David confessed his sin. And you know what? He wrote a psalm in Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51 is one of my favorite psalms. And David says in that psalm, we sang the song earlier that is from that psalm. It says, create in me a clean heart. And I love that word create because that's, that's the same Hebrew word that God uses in the beginning of Genesis. It doesn't mean to create how we create, how we take things from raw materials and we make other things to be creative. It means to create out of nothing. Meaning when God spoke the world into existence, out of nothing he created. David says, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Meaning there is nothing in me that would make me right before you. So you do something in me what I cannot do for myself. David writes that psalm. Another psalm that David wrote was the psalm that Paul quotes here. 
He's expressing the deep truths of God and the forgiveness that God has. And he says here, verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. We understand what David is talking about personally when he says lawless deeds. That, that word bless, that, that word is used more than any other word in the Old Testament. It means to have a condition where you are deeply content, secure, and happy in God, not in circumstances. What David is saying is you could be rich, you could be poor, you could be sick, or you could be healthy. No matter what your circumstances, what doesn't change is a person who is blessed in God. Again, it's a condition where you are deeply content and secure with God. And he says this person is blessed. Blessed is a person whom God, it says, lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. When we say that the gospel covers our sins completely, that it forgives us completely, we can't stress that enough. Past, present, and future. Um, what, what we do, we are like David. We hide. All of us. There's some of you in this room that you have things that you're doing and you've done that honestly no one else knows. Probably no one else in the world. And a lot of times we guys are under, well, no one needs to know my business and I'm dealing with it. And, I'm, and no, you're hiding it. And you, you're, you're crossing over. You're not dealing with the issue. If you continue to read Psalm 32, David explains what happened in his life. He says, when, when, I, when I kept silent, meaning when I did not confess my sin, he says, my bones began to waste away. My bones. The thing about it is we don't understand sometimes that God creates us as whole beings. And so oftentimes our sin is not just something that's on a moral record, but it affects us. And we understand that experientially. We know that there's moments, and some of you could be there now, where you have sin that you won't confess and you physically feel it. You try to explain it away or talk it away out of your head. You ever justify your own sin? And David's saying, no, I, I was wasting away when I kept silent. And then he says, but, but when I confessed it to God, when I acknowledged it to God, I gave it to him. And he writes this deal and goes, bless. My circumstance was all jacked up, but blessed as, as, as she, is he who understands that their sins are covered Listen to me. There's a difference between hiding sin and covering sin. We hide sin. God covers it. The way to think about this is if you think about relationships, what we normally do, um, especially in marriage relationships, not mine, but other people's relationships is, a, is when, you, when, you, when you have disagreements, fights, when you have disagreements, um, you, you begin to, a person will sin against someone else and you'll say, oh, it's okay. It's okay. And so we excuse sin. That's not the same thing as forgiving. Um, excusing sin is saying, I'm going to go around it. We're just not going to deal with it. Sure, you sin against me, no big deal. Guys, that's not how God treats us. God doesn't excuse our sin. God doesn't go, oh, man, you sinned against me. Oh, it's whatever. It's cool, bro. Right? No. So forgiveness is extremely painful. Excusing is not. Excusing is stepping over. Forgiveness is dealing with it. And the reason why we know that forgiveness is painful because we look at the most forgiving person in the world and what he had to do to forgive us is he died on the cross. So most of us excuse sin. And some of us hide sin. God covers it. And when, when, when David says, blessed is a one whose lawless deeds are forgiven and covered, um, what it means is that not that God just covers it and says, I'm going to deal with it later. Um, covered can mean like how when someone pays for you and, you know, you... You, uh, you go to that bank again. I keep going to this one, insufficient funds. 
just bringing up my past, bad experiences. And you don't have anything, and someone goes, oh, don't worry about it. I got you covered. I got your meal covered. Well, God says, I see your life. Don't worry about it. I got it covered. Past, present, and future. I'll take care of it. I mean, there's a debt that's been paid. And here's the here's, here's good thing about the gospel, that for those of you who are hiding and those of you who are just deathly afraid of confessing your sin, um, <laughs> the amazing love of God is he's not waiting for you to confess it for he, so that he can forgive it. That he's already even forgiven your hidden sin. God has fully accepted you completely in the work of Christ. He has fully forgiven you. Um, the reason why you confess sin is not to be forgiven. The reason why we confess sin is because we know that we already are forgiven. We don't confess sin in order to receive God's grace. We confess sin because we know God is gracious and he's forgiven us. It begins to change the whole outlook of our life that we, we are fully forgiven, that God has accepted us. He's not going to, we said this last week, he's not going to throw us back. He loves all of us, every part of us, and he saves us as is, accepts us as is, but he doesn't leave us as is. He takes care of our problem in all of it, past, present, and future. And so we are fully accepted, we are completely forgiven, and then lastly, when you understand the gospel, you realize that in Christ, you're completely free. That faith in Christ, you are completely free, complete freedom. Look with me in verse 8. It says, blessed, that same word again, Content, secure, happy in God is the man or woman who against the Lord will not count his sin. This right here on verse 8, just the understanding of Lord not counting our sin, that's just something I didn't really get as a, as a Christian for years. Um, I understood that Jesus came on the cross and he died for my sins. I mean, I've heard that message before. And, and I understood that even later that he, the past, present, and future, which that was liberating to think that, wow, God already forgives me from stuff that, like, I'm going to do at 35, like, five years from now. Like, that's amazing. Like, how could he do that through the cross? But this last point of saying that we have freedom, and it says that God doesn't treat us as our sin deserver. He doesn't count our sin against us. That's not one I, I got. And here's why. We don't operate like that. We treat people how they deserve, right? How, how their sins deserve. And so to think that God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, the Bible says in Psalm 103 that the, as far as the east is from the west, that God separates our sins. And, and he says that he will not remember our sins no more. Now, that's not literal. It's not like God's going, you used to sin? Oh, I didn't even, I didn't even know that, right? No, it's like, no, he's all-knowing. He knows that, right? Like he knows, he just says, I'm not, I'm choosing not to treat you that way. So going back into relationships, and those of you guys who have relationships, when you forgive somebody, you're forgiving them for real. You're not saying, I'm going to bring it up later. You're not supposed to do that. But we do that all the time. We do it with roommates. We do it with spouses. We do it with all people. We say, yeah, yeah, I forgive you. I forgive you, bro. Two weeks later, oh, yeah, uh uh-huh, just like last week. And it's like, whoa, I thought thought we took care of that. No, no, I know he's going to do that. You always do that, right? And they tell you, like in premarital counseling, never use words like always and never, but you always do it. (laughs) <laughs> and I like, it's always, you always, my wife's always like, always, almost, always, right? And it's like, but we treat people, we bring stuff up. God said, no, 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 I forgave you, and therefore I'm not going to treat you as your sins deserve. The reason why this is hard is we treat ourselves like our sins deserve. We, like, we treat ourselves how our sins deserve, and we treat others how their sins deserve. And so we're always walking around cautious with our own, I'm going to do it again. You, you, you try to manage your own sin. You ever had that? Like, oh, today's the day. I'm not going to sin today. And it's like, come on. It's not going to happen. 
And if it has, dear dad, it happened. You just didn't know about it, right? You, we treat people as their sins deserve. Think about this. I know this is a far-reaching story, but let's just say you knew of a guy who had um, uh, murdered the family next door to him um, because they wouldn't mow their lawn, and he was really particular about mowing lawn, and, and they didn't do it, and so he murdered the whole family. And you found out this guy went to prison, and he served his time, and now he's out. And he just so happened to move into the house that was vacant next door to you. Now, having known this information, are you like, oh, let's go bring this guy some lemonade. Hey, welcome to, this. Welcome to the neighborhood, right? And you realize yourself that you never mow your grass. What are you going to do? Do you treat him like you would any other neighbor? No. You treat him as someone who's committed murder. Even though he's already paid the time, you treat him that way. You walk outside, you see him, you immediately grab your kids and go, come on, kids, he might kill us today. <laughs> Sorry, sir, we're going to get to the yard later. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's a get out of here, right? For sale sign up, you're out, right? Even though he's paid the crime. Um, when it comes to our relationship with God, even though we know that he accepts us, even though that he fully forgives us, even though we know that he's paid our sins, we still think that somehow God is treating us or will treat us as our sins deserve. And so we kind of have this, um, this spiritual schizophrenia where, where we are doing well, when we feel like we're walking in step with the gospel, we feel like God's up there going, yeah, good job. And so life's good. But then when we're not walking in step with the gospel, we feel like God's up there going, oh, I'm going to get that neighbor on you, right? And that's like, that, that, that we have this view of that. And Paul is saying, and David is saying is, not when it comes to faith in God and the gospel. God's never up there with his arms folded. Like there's a complete freedom that he gives. True freedom. Because he's not going to treat you like what you've done, what you're doing, or what you will do deserve. It's grace. He just, he's just not going to do it. He loves us that much. He's already taken care of the penalty in his son Jesus. So now he lavishes his love upon us. And we, we don't understand that. Here's a way to, to, to picture it. Um, when you think of Adam and Eve, what I used to do when I was a high school pastor is ask the high school kids, what, um, what position would you rather be in? Would you rather be in the same position as Adam and Eve in the garden before sin? Or would you rather be in the position where we are now with the gospel? And what I was basically trying to see is, like, did they really understand the weight of the gospel and how amazing it was? And then most of the kids would go, whoa, Adam and Eve, obviously, like, you know. And most of them were, like, you know, like, going through, like, puberty and stuff. They were like, they were naked. Of course, we'd want to be there, right? It's like, <laughs> come on, guys. It wasn't really like that, was it? No. <laughs> so it's like, so they're, 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 and I would say, no, we'd rather be in the position now. And here's why. Adam and Eve, as good as it was, were on some form of probation, just sticking with the prison metaphor, because we're trying to understand the freedom in the gospel, is that Adam and Eve, God says, enjoy this, enjoy this, enjoy this. But if, right, that if, if you eat of this tree, bam, it all comes undone. You lose all of this. Like, if you do this, meaning it's up to you, you can stay in relationship with me, but if this happens, it's all done and it will all unravel. Where that now, through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ Jesus, his ascension unto heaven and his sending us a spirit, there's no ifs. God is not saying, I have redeemed you. Now, if you do this, it all comes undone. Never. Philippians says, he that begin a good work will finish it to completion. It is no ifs, there's no conditions. It's unconditional love, it's unconditional grace of which God himself works in our life. He's not going to treat us as our sins deserve. That's why David says, that's a blessing. That is a huge blessing from God. And so we're free. 
When we understand the gospel, we're free. If Christians really understood what they say they believe, meaning if what they profess trickled down into their heart and they understand the joy in confessing sin and receiving God and faith in, in, in the gospel, we would live free. What God has done for us is he's entered into our life. He's taken off the shackles and, that we were enslaved to sin. And then what we do now is we go back and we take those shackles and we try to put them back around us. We do it all the time. God says you're free. And what that means is, as scandalous as it is, a Christian, a person who has faith in Christ Jesus is free to do whatever he or she likes. Whatever. And, and when I say it's scandalous, that means including sin. And some of you are going, uh-oh, where is he going with this? There's no catch. What Paul's going to say in two more chapters is that before Christ, you are enslaved to sin. And you, when you're enslaved to something, you have to do it. It's not a choice. You don't have freedom in that. It's just what you do. What God does is he frees us. He frees us to obey him, to know him, to love him, and to receive his love. And, when, and he changes our desires and our affections if we would live free. So often people are saying, well, 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 Ricardo, you just said sins now. Can't you put rules on it and say, well, a Christian would never do this? No, a Christian will do something stupid. We just watch David. You're going to do something stupid. I'm going to do something stupid. That doesn't mean that I'm not free anymore. You see, when God saw his, he said, if you teach this type of grace, people are going to go wayward. They're going to do whatever they want to do. Here's the truth. People are going to do whatever they want to do anyway. When God saw his people going wayward, he didn't say, let me give them some more rules. He gave us his son. That's what he did. He gave us Jesus. Not so that we could be shackled, but we could be free to be who God has created us to be. Paul is trying to get this legalistic, religious people to understand that. And we have to realize how much religion we, we sink into, how much legalism we sink into, and we fail to see acceptance never comes by anything that we do, by what God has done. Forgiveness never comes by us trying to undo something we've done. Do you realize that when you sin and you try to go back and fix it, that's an offense to God? You didn't do anything to make it right in the beginning. Why do you think that somehow you can go make it right again? It never was up to you. It's resting in his grace. That's where full forgiveness comes from. Complete forgiveness. And then when it comes to freedom, freedom, true freedom in the gospel, it does not come in what you do, but it comes in understanding that God will never treat you because of the things of what you've done. When you realize that God loves us that much, now you're free. Amen? Free. Completely free. Let's pray.